This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Juliana Furci. And the time of decomposition cannot be measured easily in chronological time. It does take us back to the divine time or the time of each process. Juliana Furci is foundress and CEO of the Fungi Foundation, the first international nonprofit dedicated to fungi and founded in Chile. She is a Harvard University associate, co-chair of the IUCN Fungal Conservation Committee, and curator of the FFCL Fungarium. Juliana is the author of both volumes of The Field Guide to Chilean Fungi and co-author of several titles, including The First State of the World's Fungi by Royal Botanic Gardens Q and the book Fantastic Fungi. She's also the first female mycologist in Chile. For more information about her work, visit www.ffungi.org. Well, Juliana, I am so darn excited to be having this conversation with you. Mm-hmm. Just your knowledge and your spirit and your energy that you bring to this work into this world is so beautiful. And just thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much for this invitation. I'd like to begin our conversation by asking you about your research on the ancestral uses of fungi. You know, so often mushrooms and fungi are pitched as being at the forefront of innovation, whether they're being used to create vegan leather or pharmaceuticals or being incorporated into various biotechnology products. But I've heard you allude to the fact that this fixation on innovation obscures our ancestral relationship to fungi. So can you speak to the importance of grounding in our ancestral history amidst this period of intense commodification of fungi and mushrooms? Well, that's such an interesting question. And thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. We have, as humanity, culturally co-evolved with fungi. And wherever we look on Earth and every civilization that we look into, we see uses of fungi being apparent, either for feeding, healing, clothing, and and so much more, weaving, dyeing. And through the Fungi Foundation program called Elders, what we're doing is that we are documenting every known use of fungi that has been either published in peer-reviewed science in general publications or that um, have been communicated in oral history. So the ancestral and traditional uses of fungi around the world 
uh, have been a focus of ours for a very long time. The nature-based solutions that fungi hold are overwhelming and they're not new discoveries. They are ancient uses in this cultural co-evolution that we must go back to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. And thinking about this ancestral relationship, I'm curious to venture into conversation around the right to medicine and how capitalism has corrupted this right. And this conversation is so complex because on the one hand, we know that medicinal mushrooms are helpful in treating mental illness and are drawn upon as allies for immune, digestion, detox, and stress support. But on the other hand, many in the radical mycology community have pointed out that this medicine has at once become both a tourist attraction and a targeted resource for large-scale companies throughout the world via the branding of medicinal mushrooms as a you know top food trend. So I'd like to ask you what you think it could look like to approach our right to medicine and well-being via mushrooms without giving into irresponsible capitalism consumption. So almost everybody has access to medicinal mushrooms and medicinal fungi in their neighborhoods, on our trees, wherever you are in the world, on grasslands, in mountains, in coastal areas, there are fungi that have the ability to heal you in some manner. Uh, we do not need to be buying antibiotics, for example, in um, a pharmacy and from a pharmaceutical uh, company. We do not need to be purchasing sunblock. We do not need to be um, treating ear infections with compounds we, we don't even know um, where they originate from. We have, as a species, co-evolved culturally with several species of fungi that have the ability to heal us in all of our neighborhoods. So there are cosmopolitan species of fungi that can do for you what companies promote only they can do for you. And we all have the right to know that the compounds that are being sold to us as unique are actually derived from species that are found in nature, you know, in your backyard many times. So fungi really do come to show us that we can be self-sufficient from a medicinal point of view to a very large extent through species that we find even on rotting wood. There are species of fungi that have culturally co-evolved with humanity to such an extent that the uses, um, the known uses in Africa um, of certain species are the same known uses in Australasia and are also the same known uses in South America or in North America. So there really has been this cultural co-evolution that pharmaceuticals claim to be discoveries of their own. Um, and it's an insult and it's unjust to the fungi. Mm -hmm. Q's State of the World's Plants and Fungi Report announced that in 2019 alone, 
Nearly 2,000 species of fungi were scientifically named for the first time, which is such a small recognition when we think about how it's estimated that the true biodiversity of fungi is somewhere around 1 to 6 million species. Yet as we find ourselves awakening to fungal diversity, we're also experiencing tremendous ecological loss through logging, monocropping, and forest thinning, all of which puts fungi at risk. So can you share with us the status of fungi and the importance of looking for previously unrecognized fungi, not solely for scientific acquisition, but so that these species and the ecosystem they are part of can be protected? That's such a such a, a pertinent question. So last week, just as an, an example of what we're talking about, last week um, I finally coincided with a fungus that I had been looking for for twenty years, which is a species called Gastrobolitis valdivianus. It's an endangered species, in, um, endangered under IUCN criteria in. Um, the global fungal red list and also in Chilean, the Chilean national red list. And it's only been collected three times, once in 1974 and twice in 2006. Now, after searching and searching and searching and going to those locations and seeing that, that the native forest where that fungus was found and where it grew had been logged in some cases and replaced with pine plantations, you know, it took me 20 years to find it again. Last week I was walking, you know, behind a um, housing development and in a little patch of native forest, and I coincided with Gastrobolitis valdivianus for the first time, the fourth known collection of the fungus, eight meters away from pine and eucalypt plantations. And while I was collecting that fungus, I could hear the machinery of another housing development, you know, just a few meters away. So um, the threat of habitat loss is as real as, as that, this vivid, you know, um, account just happening a few, few days ago. We are losing species by the minute. Habitat loss, habitat fragmentation, as well as climate change, nitrogen enrichment, overuse of pesticides and fungicides are making us lose species before we even find them in some cases. And these species not only hold keys to human health, but for example, in the case of Gastrobolitis valdivianus found last week, I could not believe the number of insect larvae that were inside the fungus. When I collected the fungus, centipedes came out, you know, there were sort of millipedes, um, the larvae of, of flies, uh, there were ants on the fungus, you know, enough that, you know, I brought some home to rear those larvae. But what was evident was that the fungus itself was a whole ecosystem, just fundamental food and brooding grounds for a number of, of um, insects. And when we lose the fungus, those insect, insects lose their habitat. And in some cases, they only grow on these fungi. So the, the real question is, you know, what is a species? And what fungi teach us is that an individual doesn't exist. 
No species lives alone and disconnected from others. We are all interconnected with, with other organisms from other kingdoms. And when we lose one species, we're not losing an individual, we're losing an ecosystem. Hmm. Wow, that is so deep and beautiful and uh, scary, you know, a, a little bit, uh, yeah. if not a little bit, like very, very worrisome. Not that I didn't know that things were connected, but it's a really important reminder for us. And the last I heard, the global market for mushrooms was estimated to be over $40 billion a year. But even separate from this global exchange, we've seen the growth of mushroom foraging on a smaller scale as well. And oftentimes this contributes to overharvesting. So I wonder if you could speak about the risks of foraging and overharvesting, especially in context to our previous conversation on ancestral uses of mushrooms. Ancestrally, most cultures have associated the harvesting or collection of fungi, plants, and animals to a sacred activity. It's a sacred activity by which you ask for permission, you thank, you appreciate very deliberately. What we're seeing today is a fever to extract the bounty of a harvest independent of our needs. Ancestrally, you only take what you are going to use. You only take, with permission, what you need to feed your family, to heal your, heal your family, to clothe your family. And the commercialization would be through uh, swapping, we call trueque in Spanish, um, on a very small scale. What is extremely worrisome today is this notion that you need to take before another does, and therefore you take everything that you see. You never stop to ask permission. You never dwell on the existence of the species you're taking or that you're taking from. We never stop to say thank you. We don't stop to appreciate. And that's driving a, a very dangerous fever uh, and bounty hunt of a renewable you know, species, renewable being, um, a, a reproducing being, and really driving it to the point of not being able to reproduce or survive. And this happens you know, in, in different ways. It's, it's very important to keep in mind that fungi are organisms that form their own kingdom or queendom, as I like to call them, um, such as plants are and animals are also organisms that form their own kingdoms or queendoms. And when we talk about fungi, we're using a, a name that includes yeasts, molds, lichens, mushrooms, conchs, and other organisms. Just as when we say animals, we're talking about insects, mammals, amphibians, you know, invertebrates. You can, you, know, you can separate this large kingdom. And so, or queendom. When we talk about fungi, 
and over-harvesting, um, the first step which is missing from the knowledge of many harvesters is the life cycle of the organism that we are looking for and that we are taking from. There are some species, for example, chaga, that grow on trees and that are you know, a whole, just one individual per tree. And if you're taking everything you see, you're really not leaving any of that individual to reproduce sexually. There are other species like turkey tail, where um, also you, by taking everything you find on a log, um, you're really, um, in, in, you're stopping that species from reproducing or that individual from reproducing sexually. And there are other species um, of edible fungi, for example, chanterelles um, or let's say morels, that they're, all, they're, very, they're not very closely related, but you normally, um, you, you're taking these spore-producing bodies for food, um, but the, the mycelium below has the ability to reproduce asexually and to produce more sexual reproductive organs, you know, bodies. So there's a difference when you're harvesting polypores to when you're harvesting a fleshy mushroom as to the impact you're having when you take everything you see. That's what I want to say. Taking everything you see is never good practice in any area of life, less so with mushroom harvesting. You have to leave not only for others, but also for the animals that depend on them, also for the plants that depend on them, and some for them to reproduce sexually as well. So really greed is driving over harvesting, I would say, and it's extremely detrimental to the ecosystems that fungi are and to anybody who, who wants to use them or has to use them. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I used to be a commercial mushroom hunter for a little bit of time. And it was really my goodness, how do I say it? It was my, it was like the Pandora's box of falling in love with the forest because I was able to be in the forest all the time and I was exploring different areas and I was really firsthand experiencing old growth forest versus second growth versus monocropped forest and what logging was or how logging was impacting not just the 
visual aesthetic of the forest, not just the ecological uh, damage of the forest, but also the feeling and the spirit of the forest. And I also saw so many groups of commercial harvesters just go in and clean the forest floor of mushrooms, like really taking everything they saw. And so you could just imagine if I was taking most of what I saw, although I, you know, even at that time, I didn't know much, but I knew not to do that. But I would come upon places where, for instance, with Matsutakis, I could see all the holes of where they were taken. And so it was a really big eye opener. And I ceased to continue commercial hunting because I started to understand that this greed was damaging the forest. And it was really a deep realization for me and a little bit sad because I I didn't know how to be in right relationship with fungi at the time. But I knew that something wasn't right. And so I knew I needed to stop. And I just think about all the threats to fungi and how important they are. But whether it's over harvesting or logging, and and one thing I do want to mention too about logging, for those who don't know this, it's not just that the trees are taken and the soil is disrupted from the machinery and the dragging and the road construction and then the sun beating down on the soil, drying it out. Of course, just the act of logging is detrimental. But I think what many people don't know is all the poisons that are sprayed on the understory plants, on the trees that are undesirable, on the fungi. It's like being in a cornfield. You know, it's there's a lot of poisons being used. And so I, I just felt like I wanted to speak to that with you. And, yeah. and then it's the replacement with um, exotic species that bring in a whole other communities of organisms that take over, you know, native, um, that invade into native ecosystems as well. I mean, here in Chile, as in other countries of the world, in the US, in New Zealand, in Australia, you know, the beautiful Amanita muscaria, you know, the fly agaric, soma, uh, the most, you know, one of the most important fungi um, for humanity, is a mycorrhizal, ectomycorrhizal species with pine, with birch, um, with chestnut trees. But it's from the Northern Hemisphere. And when, uh, you know, logging companies come to the Southern Hemisphere, clear cut our old growth, native temperate rainforests, spray the floor with those poisons and then replace it with exotic pines that come with their own ectomycorrhizae, such as Amanita. What we're seeing now is that you can go into native temperate rainforests and find Amanita muscaria forming symbiosis with native trees. Now, you know, it's a beautiful find, you know, it warms your heart if you don't know what you're seeing. But when you do know, you realize that this invasive mushroom you know, the fly agaric is taking over the niche of several native mushrooms that should be doing the work for the tree and that have been displaced or potentially, you know, evicted from their ecosystems. So there, there are invasive fungi that come as a consequence of logging and, and um, forestry industries. Hmm. Oh, that's a really good point to bring up. And I have thought about 
the invasive species a bit because I see that there are a lot of fungal add-ins to say fertilizers or just different products that you can get whether that's for your personal garden or that you can that I know that the industry uses in fields or in forest lands and so I I wondered about that specifically because in some ways I think okay well they're adding these fungal elements and potentially those are helping to rebuild soil but if they are not native are they then invasive and are they then creating problems down the line that we are not aware of in the moment? Well, you know, it's curious and it's such a good, you know, a good query to have, but it it's even worse than what some can imagine because not only are you being sold these exotic fungal additives, but you're also being sold these, um, these fungi that will better your soil whilst you add them, but that have been genetically modified to not reproduce. So it actually makes you depend on buying the commercial version of a, um, you know, of a, of a non-reproductive uh, biological product. So, it, you know, it, it gets worse. It's like buying a seed that will never uh, germinate, really. Mm, wow. Yeah, I, oh, goodness, there's so much in this. Um, because I, yeah, just thinking about the debate between invasive versus native fungi and the implications of certain restoration projects, even where fungi that are not native to the area are rapidly introduced to forest ecosystems. And, yeah. you know, I wonder when it is a project for restoration, and it's not for commercialized uh, monocropping or or cropping of any type. Are there any times where introducing a species that is not native can be helpful? Do, are there any instances of that? The fungi have this fantastic wisdom, and it's evolved into the fact that they are very species specific. So many times, as much as we'd want a fungus to establish to, for a micro-restoration project, it simply can't because fungi are specific to their substrate. So, for example, we can find in one area of the world an amazing fungus that, that can grow, that's native to that area, that does a great job cleaning up. And when we want to take it to another region to do the same job, it just doesn't establish because its food source isn't there. So what fungi force us to do with this species specificity is to look for local solutions. So there is little doubt that the best fungal allies to clean up an area of a given place will be in the fungi of that place, in the fungal diversity of that place. Uh, and you, wouldn't, you won't really need to look anywhere else because most probably what you find will not establish there and do what you think it will. Mm-hmm. So as a, as a, as a forager, you, you know that if you're looking for matsutake, you look for the matsutake habitat. If you're looking for morels you look for the morel habitat it's not that these species can occur just anywhere 
They're very specific in where they live. And the same for restoration. If you're, you know, you need a species that is capable of establishing and thriving in the habitat that you want to clean up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And if you do want to introduce, or if projects are saying that they are introducing native species back into the space that's been damaged, is there a uh -huh. protocol in which to harvest and implement these species back in to the ecosystem? Like, is there a way that is, is there a way for it to be done in right relationship? Or are there ways that it's done that you don't agree with? So pathogenic fungi exist all over the world. And they are native to several systems. Now, the species thrive when there, when there is an imbalance. So if, if a place is, has been, for example, logged and the floor is full of branches, leaves, you know, um, even you know, smaller tree trunks, or just everything that, that has been left behind, you will see certain species become predominant in that landscape. And it's normally the species that are uh, saprobic, they are recycling the decomposing plant matter that is left behind after that impact. And so that's, you know, one way to, to look at the abundance of a species in a place is through the lens of an imbalance. When you have contamination with chemicals that are killing the plant matter, and it's hard for the fungi to establish there, to do their job of decomposing to enable recomposition. Sometimes we need to help the species establish there. We need to put them back into that system so that they can decompose the plant matter. We normally do that with um, either native species of wood decomposers or known, quote unquote, aggressive species of fungi that whose mycelium quickly establishes and whose mycelium can tolerate the chemicals that are found there. By excellence, one of the most powerful mycelial um, uh, powers is held in the oyster mushroom, in Pleurotus ostriatus. And you can introduce it to certain areas um, and it will establish up to a point where it has something to eat because it's wood dwelling and a wood decomposer. Once that wood has been decomposed, the fungus will not thrive as much. However, it will sporulate and it will travel. It will move around and establish in other areas and could potentially become a pathogen in healthy areas close to where you're cleaning up. So. You know, it's a duality that many face. Um, and in order to, to really overcome that duality and make a decision, it's important to have a thorough, thorough knowledge of the native species that might be able to do that same thing um, that the pleurotus is doing, but whose detrimental impact um, would be less because the ecosystems and habitats are used to their presence. So it's not an easy answer. <laughs> There's a lot to consider. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for 
considering with me for a bit of time on this very complex topic that I think about all the time with my work in conservation, restoration of forest lands. And it's, um, it's just something that I, <laughs> it just always is with me, these questions. So I really appreciate working through them a bit with you. I, I, I have a, a very, you know, emblematic case of this same dilemma. So Tierra del Fuego is a large island shared, uh, politically modernly shared by Argentina and Chile. It's on the southern tip of the continent of the Americas, uh, bridging towards Antarctica. And in Tierra del Fuego, um, there was, uh, there's there's an an ecological genocide going on thanks to the introduction of beavers. Many years ago, a gentleman decided he was going to farm beavers for the pelt industry, so for their skins. And when his business didn't go well, he decided to free them. What we have today is an invasion that is unprecedented. I mean, it's just heartbreaking to see these are old growth Subantarctic forests, you know, trees that can live, you know, up to 800, 1,000 years old, um, suffering from basically being drowned because of the, the beaver dams that, um, that, these, that these animals build. And, and they have no predator here. So nobody, nobody um, caps the beaver population naturally because it's an invasive species. Working a few years ago, measuring what was happening with fungal with with, fun, with fungi there so with richness and abundance of species it was apparent that where the beaver dams are the fungal diversity drops drastically like it changes from having you know a hundred species in um, five square meters to one species in five square meters um, but the abundance of those species is enormous and no because the beavers eat the um, the bark of the trees, um, and you know they 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 use um, a lot of that uh, of that material to to build their dams. Um, no, no fungus was establishing to be able to decompose the tree trunks so that that energy would be able to recompose into the into the system. And so we were looking at different fungal species that were capable of living on these hard woods that had no no bark on them and you know really the the realization was we need to find the native species that can do that there are exotic species that could do it and they could do that today but it means introducing a species of fungus whereas you know we need the time to find what native fungus can do this in a more ecologically just way. So when faced with that duality, my choice and my professional choice to the people who had, were asking me those questions was do not introduce a new species here that could then you know, just take over niches that other native species hold. But rather, let's take the time we need to find that native species that can establish on these barkless tree trunks wow so interesting so much to take in and 
<laughs> I think I think it ultimately it takes us back and forward and present to how we relate to time. The you know the ancient Greeks would measure time in two ways: the kairos and the chronos. And the chronos being you know the chronological time that we have adopted with seconds, minutes, you know hours, weeks, you know, years, and then. Kairos, which is the divine time or the natural time of a process, which is different and is not comparable to the chronos, to the chronological time. And, you know, the time of each process is, is, is to be respected. And the time of decomposition cannot be measured easily in chronological time. It does take us back to the divine time or the time of each process. Wow, that is so beautiful and so deep to hear that. And that just took me in so many places in my mind. So thank you for bringing that up because I think that's something that's often overlooked, especially since we live in a culture that is in so many ways pressured by instant gratification and the need to see change and movement and results and solutions in a very quick time frame that doesn't actually make sense most of the time. Right. And this kind of is making me think about that alongside others, you've pointed out the critical role of the fungi queendom and the role that it can play in response to biodiversity loss and climate change and just makes me think of this deep time. And it reminds me of these ancient ecosystems and how fungal diversity played a role in them, really shaping evolutionary history, which is really to say that I'm thinking about fungi's relationship with the earth outside of our use of fungi or even our relationship with them. So I guess my question is, how can fungi assist with ecological regeneration for the sake of the planet and our more-than-human-kin, if left alone, especially? Well, you can't have any regeneration without the fungi. It's that simple. I mean, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's more basal. Nothing can recompose without fungi that are decomposing. Energy is not lost. Energy is transformed. And the organisms that transform energy are the fungi. It's impossible to look at regeneration without looking at decomposition. And decomposition doesn't exist without fungi. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um... I mean, it's, it's really very, I mean, it sounds very simple. And, and what I'm going to say is it's very simple. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really is as simple as that. Mm-hmm. We cannot... Um, heal our planet without fungi. Um, no organism in the terrestrial habitat can live without the fungi. Not not one of them. Plants cannot live outside of water without the fungi that are in or on its roots. And you know when when life emerged from an aquatic ecosystem onto terrestrial landscapes, the only reason that that um, the first life forms established were because of teaming up in a symbiosis with fungi. So once again, what fungi are saying is that an individual doesn't exist. Every time we use the word ecosystem, we're talking about fungi. Every time we talk about rewilding, we're talking about fungi. And 
you know, in to the eyes of a mycologist, you know, we, we see a tree as a photosynthetic symbiont of a fungus or of many fungi. We don't see it the other way around. It, it all has to do with your point of view. Some people say, oh, you know, ectomycorrhizal fungi allow plants to live. Well, no, it's that plant that's allowing the fungus to live. It also, you know, could be. So, so really here there is a very fundamental and basal acknowledgement that needs to be made tangible in language, in legislation, and in policy in general, that acknowledges that fungi are the firmament of all terrestrial ecosystems, every single one of them. That's a perfect transition to my next question, which is that Chile became the first country in the world to include fungi in environmental legislation. And I understand your organization, Fungi Foundation, played a huge role in pushing for this protection. So I'd love if you could share with us the importance of these legal protections and how this process unfurled. Yeah, it was um, definitely our doing and triggering it. So this was uh, over a decade ago when Chile opened up its environmental legislation. So it's a constitutional law that um, regulates over all, all the environment. It was opened up for, for different reasons. There were articles that were under revision. And it presented an opportunity to propose or to, you know, to, to work about around the contents of that legislation and we saw the opportunity to work in together to collaborate with a network of organizations to push for Chile to adopt a recommendation made by IUCN and by the Convention on Biodiversity um, to include fungi in its um, in its conservation planning and biodiversity um, plans. So because Chile had had such a, a bad grade in environmental, um, uh, you know, in, in environmental issues, um, we went to the Ministry of the Environment and presented them with an opportunity to become the champions of the inclusion of this kingdom in its legislation. Um, and we proved to them that and presented and then proved to them that it wasn't expensive to do. And that um, really, if we were talking about an ecosystemic approach to nature, this was the only way to do it. And after two years of working to get um, both, you know, the Chamber of Deputies and the Senate and the ministries to understand this issue, you know, in a very strategic way, 
the law was finally passed with the inclusion of fungi in two paragraphs of the, you know, of one article of this legislation, this bill, um, where it establishes that the environmental impact assessment system must now also look at um, the impact of fungi when giving an environmental permit, um, that fungi need to be uh, included in the species in inventory of the country, and that um, public information systems for fungi needed to be put in place through regulation. And what that really translated into was that if you are applying for a permit to build a road, to build a dam, you know, to do a housing development, you not only have to assess the impact of your project on fauna and flora, but also on the funga. The funga is the fungal diversity of a given place. And we're the only country in the world where the impact on fungi is assessed prior to giving a permit to impact that ecosystem or that territory. And, you know, it's funny that we're talking today, nothing is a coincidence, but I was mentioning Gastrobolitis validianus, which is this species that I finally coincided with after 20 years of trying to coincide with it. Um, this endangered species of, of fungus um, that, you know, today there was a news piece um, that was published around the um, discovery of this species that hadn't been seen for 15 years. And I immediately got an email from the, the regional uh, environment minister um, of the region where I found the fungus saying, this is super important to us we do not want housing developments to go on in the habitat where this fungus was found. So really it's, an, it's a legislation that gives us a tool, a conservation tool to protect ecosystems, vulnerable ecosystems, old ecosystems, unique ecosystems from the hand of men and women. And, it, and it's proving to be quite effective that is so exciting. <laughs> that is really, really yeah. amazing to hear and, and, about. And going back to yeah. going back to what you, you asked about these ancient ecosystems, it's, it's, it's important to keep in mind that there are species of fungi that only grow on trees that are older than 400 years old. I mean, fungi are so species specific that even, you know, the age of the tree is fundamental to um, the existence to the reproduction of a fungal species. So, you know, loggers won't log trees that are extremely old because they're all rotten inside. Well, what is that? That's a fungus that's living there. A fungus that doesn't live on younger trees sometimes, um, you know, and, and they, the old trees are mostly cut to clear away from, from medium-sized trees. They're just discarded you know thousands of years it's ancient being with its ancient beings inside and you know included are just discarded to get to you know this this bounty uh, you know of, of of utilitarian you know wood that actually probably isn't even as useful as they think so you know so um when once logged but 
what I mean is that there are fungal reasons to protect ancient trees. And another very important project of the Fungi Foundation in that, in our conservation program, is the development of easy access conservation tools based on fungi that can give you leverage to protect ancient ecosystems. Mm -hmm. It's so brilliant what you're doing and all the folks you work with to have built out this tool or using this tool for conservation. And I'm just, I'm really blown away right now. And I'm really grateful that this is a, a tool that can be used. And I'm hoping that folks in other places get inspired by what you're doing down in Chile and try to understand how to bring that to more countries and more places so that development doesn't completely destroy these ecosystems that we know is extremely challenging, if not sometimes impossible, to support them to return to what they were before the destruction came for them. It's absolutely impossible. It's absolutely, I mean, you cannot compensate for the age of a tree. And, you know, it, what in the Pacific Northwest and then, you know, um, the, the Pacific coast of Canada, um, uh, my, my dear friend and, and, and brother, Paul Stamets, he, he was one of the first people who used the, fun, the, the fungal leverage to protect old forests. He discovered, you know, the, the um, Formitopsis officinalis, the agaricon, the, the agaricon fungus had very powerful antiviral um, compounds. Now those those fungi only grow on ancient trees. And he made it a matter of national defense um, in the US to protect the forests because in those on those old trees grew an old fungus that had antivirals found nowhere else in nature. So, you know, this is something that the future of old forests, in my view, has a chance looking at the fungal reasons to protect them. And I hope that goes more mainstream. Mm -hmm. I do too. And yeah, yeah, I just want to jump back to the fungal diseases for a moment and I'd also like to ask about the recent increase in fungal diseases, and I know you touched on this, but specifically, how is climate change contributing to the rise of fungal pathogens that target crops or other species, and which fungal diseases pose the greatest threat to global or even local ecosystems? I think that there are two ways of looking at this. I mean, by looking at the proliferation of a fungal species that might be detrimental to a plant or an animal, it doesn't mean that the fungus is causing that detriment. Fungi, as are plants and animals, are opportunistic organisms. And where there is an imbalance, they will thrive. Now, there are two ways of looking at that thrive. One is that they are... Um, causing the problem. And another is that they're quote unquote solving a problem. Because if through climate change, several plants are dying, um, what the fungi are doing there is decomposing to enable recomposition in some cases. They're not just, you know, uh, this intelligent being that's out to kill all the trees. No, they are being opportunistic at this available energy that is becoming available because of a larger imbalance in the system. 
So I, I'm always very weird, you know, very careful when talking about fungal pathogens, because in my view, most of the cases are fungi that are that are making the most of a larger imbalance that, that they have not caused. It's like when you look at witlacoche and corn, right? <laughs> it's incredible that most of the countries in the world are spraying their corn and maize to get rid of pathogens. That's actually an edible species that is extremely, has a lot of nutrition. So, so it's sort of, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, what came first? Was it the, was it this beautiful, pristine, you know, unspotted cob, you know, with, with of corn? Or is it this symbiotic organism with a fungus that can also feed you as well as the corn or, you know, with a balanced cycle? I think there's a misconception of what health is in an ecosystem. Um, health is not necessarily everybody living happily forever after. Health has imperfections in an ecosystem. It has decomposition. It has transitioning of one life form to another. Fungi are the ones that normally do that, and they are um, stigmatized for doing so. But in a healthy ecosystem, there is abundant decomposition. You know, it's not, it's not zero decomposition. Yeah. It's important to let things rot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for, yeah, for um, bringing us to that. Uh, well, I wouldn't say conclusion, but t just grounding us in that reality and yeah, I would like to transition now our conversation to discuss the patriarchal undertones of the field of mycology. And so, you know, blatantly speaking, uh, the mycological world, or at least in the so-called West, is dominated by a lot of older white men. And there's a lot of ego there as well. And so I wonder if you could share your experiences working in the field, as well as the importance of dismantling the patriarchal Eurocentric structure so that mycology may be more welcoming to a more diverse audience. Yeah, it's, it's, such, a, it's such a good topic. You know, I, I, I don't know if I'm laughing out of nerve or just, you know, how, how ridiculous it really is in, in many places. I think that, I mean, the origin of this comes from, you know, the late 17th century, you know, European takeover of, you know, professions, quote-unquote professions, where paganism was driven out you know the church overtook you know the natural sciences you know anybody who practiced medicine outside of um the accepted you know establishment all male was a witch and had to be burnt and um that has really lived on fiercely in the natural sciences um it was only really in the um in the early 19th century, that some females in this quote-unquote Western world were even allowed to 
go to secondary school. And it was really in just in the late 19th century where um, females were allowed, women were allowed to um, go to university and work you know, in research. So it's, it's, it's a dramatic scenario of a whole science that has either been um, dominated by um, males or where there's been a domination by female researchers, but that have never been acknowledged because they're women and therefore men have been acknowledged for their work, you know, and that's not very hard to find. Even, you know, um, Fanny Hess, who was a a brilliant microbiologist, she invented, um, she discovered um, the, the agar gel to, you know, to be able to cultivate microorganisms but it was, you know, her boss who took the credit for it because, you know, she was just this woman working in the lab. You know, she wasn't uh, she wasn't anybody to, to be attributed with that discovery. Um, and today, thankfully, less and less we're seeing we're seeing this happen. Although studying in a university is still quite an elite opportunity and, and it has to be said, I mean, you need quite a lot of money to be able to go to university still in most countries of the world. Um, there, the, there's been only very recently a, a drive for more inclusion in, um, in access to, to undergraduate and graduate studies. Um, there's a difference in different regions. While in, um, you know, in, in South America, for example, um, there are many, many female mycologists, and there are many generations of women working in mycology. But what's traditionally happened is that the women have been excluded from field activity and left more in the lab. So women, because they can do the delicate job of slicing specimens or, you know, because they need to be taking care either of their parents or of their children and they, or of their husband. So they need to, you know, have like a nine to five job and um, field mycology, this, you know, treacherous, rugged, dirty job where you're working for, you know, 20 hours a day and walking for weeks was deemed as unfit for a woman, not elegant at all, uh, dangerous, and taking a woman to neglect her family. So that was, you know, that's only just starting to change. When I started working in the field of mycology 23 years ago, I remember people saying, oh, and, um, you know, how, how do you do it? You know, where do you get changed in the field? I would just be looking at them thinking, is this a joke? Then questions when I was you know, married and, and a mother, like who looks after your son while you're out in the field? And I would be thinking, I wonder if they ask my husband who's looking after his son when he's working, you know, no way. I mean, this was just a very gender biased question or, um, you know, how are you, who, who's, who's, staying at home who's looking after your house when you're you know in the field for a month well you know nobody I live with somebody else and he can do that too but all this was unthinkable even 20 years ago I got so many insinuations that I was neglecting my son 
because I was in the field for two weeks straight. I was even told by several people to consider the damage that would bring to my boy of his mum not being around every year in full. I mean, it gets to that level. It, 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 you know, I, that's why I laugh, because you either laugh or you cry or you get really angry. <laughs> um, but it's still like that. There's still this vision that the woman has full responsibility of the family, that the field and the forest is not a place that's apt for decent women to be spending full time in. It's just infuriating. Sorry. Yeah. I could rant on about that. Um, yeah. But, but now, you know, more and more, there's a global movement of inclusiveness, gender inclusiveness, racial inclusiveness. Thankfully, thankfully, that, that's all I can say. I, I unfortunately got to live through a lot of heavy, um, unfair insinuations about being a mother and, and working in the field. And it got to the point where even when I met Dame Jane Goodall and she said to me, you know, she, she, we were talking about, you know, being a field scientist and having a small child. And she said to me, don't stop, don't stop. You know, she said, you are with mushrooms where I was with the chimps, you know, we do it with the children. Don't stop. And I listened to her. She would even have to put her son in a cage so that the chimps wouldn't harm her, harm him. You know, I haven't had to cage my son, but I have had to leave him sometimes for, you know, for five weeks to, to go and explore an area. I don't think that um, that deems us as being bad mothers at all. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your personal experience with this. And... I really hear you. I definitely have gotten some words around my lifestyle and that I've chosen to be in the forest and uh, just the way that I have, yeah, chosen to spend my time <laughs> and that yeah. there's definitely segments of this dominant culture that really looks down upon that, sends a lot of guilt trips my way. Uh, makes me feel like I'm yeah. making the wrong decisions, that it's not worthy, it's not the most valuable, it's not what I should be doing, I'm going to waste my life in the forest, you know, like all sorts of stuff. That, it's strange. Yeah. It's really, it's strange. This, you know, clearly it's ingrained in the people who are telling us these things and telling so many folks that how they're choosing to be in deep relationship with the land and is not it's undesirable I guess and for me it's almost made me feel like I'm an undesirable woman and it's just so strange yeah. and I'm like wow this is really odd that I am being made to feel that my womanhood is in question because I've chosen to be in the woods with a lifestyle that isn't what is conventional. And so I just wanted to say that to um, share with you in that frustration. And also, what are yeah. we to do but say, well, that's your opinion, but, you know, the mushrooms are calling. Oh, if they only knew how right. amazing life is, you know, just, oh, yeah, you're missing the whole thing. I chuckle inside most time yeah 
I, I mean, my mother was a political prisoner here for the coup in Chile. She was, you know, uh, imprisoned and tortured for a year and then an exile and a refugee. And, and I've had, you know, the upbringing enough to be able to chuckle inside and say, you know what, just like, it's just the convi your convictions are your convictions and there's nothing more valuable to any individual than respectfully having a conviction. And my mother always told me that, you know, stick to your guns um, and you don't have to please everybody. And there is really, there are only very few counted times where it's worth even explaining. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I just take that and she would say, take it with a pinch of salt, she mm -hmm. would say. Just let them say what they want to say, you know. You know, and it's been the best, the best teaching. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking about that. I, I know so many of our listeners have been, um, well, will be touched by this conversation and have been touched by fungi's demonstration of interspecies companionship, which I think is something we're speaking mm -hmm. to. And just their brilliant response to surrounding contamination or simply the aesthetic of wonder or the beauty of coming across wild mushrooms and the spiritual connection yeah. I know that it's brought for me. So as we come to a close, I wonder if you could share some of the lessons fungi have taught you about our responsibility to one another and to the earth as we unmap the harmful structures of our world. I think one of the most powerful lessons I've learned from fungi is that death doesn't exist, that the destruction of a physical life form is not the end of the energy, and that a soul's passing is not an end. Um, and I think that, that that for me is the continuum. Fungi have taught me that that there is a continuum that transcends most existences. And that's, I think, one of the biggest lessons. Apart from the, the lesson that many are only just learning, that everything is connected. And that really um, an individual doesn't exist. Um, I think that, that that concept of death being a beginning and not an end, and that you know, decomposition for recomposition. Really, recomposition is has to do with regeneration, right? Has really led me to believe that we have to let things rot and that that rotten mold are the new rock and roll. I, I say it, but it's true, you know. It's rotten mold. We have to let things rot. The end of something is not a finale, it's just a beginning, yeah. And I think that can bring a lot of us to peace um, with the system that we're living in, that there is a continuum that will prevail, that energy will be transformed, and that this life form is not the only one, and that when it finishes, it doesn't mean it's the end. Mm. That was so beautiful and poetic and uh, really um, moved me. And I, I think remembering about the power of decomposition 
and death and rebirth is so important even on just all the the day-to-day of life and the psychological challenges of living in this time to remember the cadence of life and that nothing is actually stagnant or sterile for that matter and that is so important especially for me to tap into right now so thank you for bringing that up oh you're welcome and and i think it's fundamental to understand that health is not a spotless system a healthy system is not a spotless system in a healthy ecosystem things will be rotting trees will be falling you know, naturally, not not by bloggers, but, you know, things happening in the natural ecosystem, in a pristine ecosystem, you will be walking upon layers and layers and layers of dead plant matter. You, in a healthy ecosystem, an animal will die on the forest floor and will become an ecosystem in itself. Um, The fact that you find a dead bird in in a forest does not mean that it's an unhealthy forest. It's important to let things rot. It's part of health. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh, Juliana, this has been such an incredible conversation and I wish that it would go on for hours and so I'm already planning how to speak again on a part two because I don't want it to end and I feel like there's so much to uncover together and to learn from you and I'm just so grateful for your time with us today, but also the time you've put into the study of fungi and the earth and relationships and also finding ways and creating tools to protect the land. It's so beautiful. And before we completely close, I would love for you to let listeners know how they can connect with you and the Fungi Foundation further. Okay, thank you very much. And and I also want to thank Nat Kelly for connecting us. Mm-hmm. Nat is an amazing weaver and interconnector, but she, she weaves so so elegantly. And so thank you to, to Nat. You can find the Fungi Foundation um, through ffungi.org and also um, on social media and on Instagram at um, Fungi Foundation and we're always available for anybody who has any inquiry in um, in almost any language that you would please you know to, to inquire so um, find us at ffungi.org or at Fungi Foundation Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Roma Ransom, Rajna Swaminathan, and Julio Quinto. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, and Francesca Glassfell, with special research assistance by Julia Jackson. 